Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Guys, are you trying to stay in 20-year-old shape into your 30s and 40s and finding it, well, impossible? Then you need to listen to this. Beachbody, the company that revolutionized getting ripped at home with P90X and Insanity, has a brand new program just for you called Lift 4. It's part lift. It's part hit. With total body shredding results in just 30 to 40 minutes a day, right at home on the Beachbody On Demand app. That's how you get killer results as an adult. Go to Beachbody.com to sign up now and you can try Live 4 for free. That's Beachbody.com. During the 1930s, a man named Pat O'Dwyer served as the assistant district commissioner in Port Loco in the northern part of Sierra Leone. He was a career bureaucrat and, for the most part, his job wasn't very interesting. He was tasked with keeping the peace and maintaining the rule of law in his district. What that really meant was doing a lot of paperwork and submitting reports to his superiors back in England that everything was running smoothly in the district. So it came as a major shock the day a local chief appeared on his doorstep carrying a dead body. The victim had been a local farmer who lived in a hut in the African bush. Someone from the village discovered the man's remains in the forest near his home. The corpse was badly decomposed. The hot, moist jungle weather had caused the flesh to rapidly deteriorate, and the corpse stank. But even still, it was Pat O'Dwyer's job to determine the official cause of death. And he was bound to do it, no matter how much the remains turned his stomach. To O'Dwyer, the cause of death seemed obvious. The remains clearly showed signs of a leopard attack. The man's flesh had been shredded with savage claw and teeth marks, and some pieces were missing, presumably carried off by the big cat into the jungle to be eaten. Just to be certain his assumptions were correct, O'Dwyer had the body delivered to the local medical examiner, who confirmed that the man had indeed died of a leopard attack. But it wasn't long after O'Dwyer filed his official report that he began to hear rumblings that there might be more to this case than he initially surmised. He began to hear rumors from the local villagers about vicious half-man, half-leopard creatures who stalked the jungle at night. According to the locals, these creatures had once been human, but they had transformed themselves with black magic into vicious monsters that were as much beast as they were men. For a while, O'Dwyer laughed these rumors off as nothing more than superstitious nonsense. But then, over time, O'Dwyer began to change his attitude. He had to consider that the villagers may have been right, and he wasn't the only one. Around the same time period during the 1930s, a German doctor named Werner Young came to Liberia to set up a mission. One evening, he was summoned to a house where a young girl had been mauled in an animal attack. When Dr. Young got there, he found the bloody and badly mutilated remains of a 15-year-old girl splayed out across a mat. In his memoir, Dr. Young described the body as such. The neck was torn to ribbons by the teeth and claws of the animal. The intestines were torn out, 
the pelvis shattered, and one thigh was missing. A part of the thigh gnawed to the bone, and a piece of the shin bone lay near the body. At first glance, Young was quick to believe that the poor girl had been mauled by a leopard that had crept into her home in the middle of the night. But then as he studied the scene closer, he realized several things were amiss. Several of the cuts seemed too clean and uniform for an animal attack. He also noted that the girl's liver was missing, and a length of intestine had been cleanly severed, something no mere leopard could have done. Then there were the footprints. Scattered around the dirt floor were the paw prints of a large cat, but also mixed in among them, he found a few other footprints that were more difficult to explain. These ones were human. What both Dr. Young and Pat O'Dwyer had unknowingly stumbled across was the work of a cannibalistic cult who murdered hundreds of people across Western Africa. Their name became feared throughout the continent and only spoken of in hushed whispers. They were known as the Leopard Society. I'm Nate Hale, reporting to you live from my secret conspiracy litter box, and this is The Conspirators. Europeans had some knowledge of the African continent dating back to at least the time of the Greek and Roman empires. Around 150 CE, Ptolemy drew a map of the world that included the Nile and several other African landmarks. By the 1400s, Portuguese sailors managed to make their way to the western coast of Africa. Although by the time the Portuguese managed to chart a course around the South African Cape, they discovered several Chinese and Indian merchants had beaten them there. During the 1500s, the early slave traders that came to the western shores of Africa began to report that practically from the moment they set foot on dry land, they realized they were being watched. Many superstitious sailors swore there were creatures in the jungle that stood on two legs who watched them from afar. They were covered from head to toe in fur, and their skulls were shaped like large cats with razor-sharp fangs, their hands tapering off into dagger-like claws. Still, whether these natives were man or beast, for many years they didn't seem to do much more than stand back and observe even as white men invaded their homeland and stole people by the boatload, dragging them away in chains. It wasn't until sometime in the 1870s that reports began to surface that some of the West African natives had finally begun to fight back. During the late 19th century, an increasing number of French settlers in Gabon began disappearing in the jungle. Someone or something, was stalking them along the jungle trails. The bodies that did turn up were literally torn apart. At first, it was presumed they were being stalked by actual jungle cats, but soon, some villagers and other settlers began to discover evidence that these killings might actually have been caused by men. Word began to spread about a secret society of warriors who dressed in leopard skins and carried deadly weapons made to resemble leopard claws. When you hear the word secret society, you probably think of names such as the Freemasons or the Illuminati. There are certainly plenty of such groups around the globe we could spend entire episodes on, but for now let's focus on secret societies in Africa. Secret societies are actually quite common throughout African history. 
Although sometimes it can be a little difficult to draw the line between a true secret society and a typical African tribe that just didn't like to interact with outsiders. When you research the Leopard Society, you'll also come across mentions of several similar societies of tribesmen who worshipped other dangerous animals as well. For example, there was also a Lion Society, a Crocodile Society, and a Baboon Society. And like the Leopard Society, each of these killed people in a manner related to the creatures they modeled themselves after. The Crocodile Society, for example, preferred to drown their victims by the river, while the Baboon Society's modus operandi was to beat their victims to death. But the Leopard Society is the one that has gained the most notoriety throughout Africa, primarily for its prolific killing spree and their ability to spread fear wherever they appeared. In Western Africa, the Leopard Society is also known as the Ekpe, or the Anyoto Aniota, and they are considered to be the oldest such secret society in West Africa. There's a lot that remains a mystery about the group even today, but it's commonly believed that they were a warrior class of men who started out with a common goal, to drive out the white invaders from their homeland. During the late 1800s, Gabonese members of the Leopard Society began sending messengers throughout West Africa on a recruitment drive. Soon, word spread throughout Gabon, Liberia, Sierra Leone, Guinea, and Ghana, and in a relatively short time, the Leopard Society grew to boast thousands of members. Although exactly how many Leopard Society members there were, or who were their leaders, remains a mystery. Leopard Society chapters operated in isolated cells with no single group having direct knowledge of other society members or their leadership. As a result, the Leopard Society managed to get away with widespread murder for at least 150 years, and some say up to this very day. One thing that did unite all Leopard men was their practice of a gruesome black magic ritual to create a potion called Borfema. This was the elixir which Leopard Society members believed gave them their strength and allowed them to transform into leopards. To create this magic potion, the newest society members were required to murder a colonist and would then drag the body into a secret meeting place deep in the jungle. There, a group of leopard men would help them perform the secret ritual to create the magic elixir by boiling the blood and organs of the victim. The leopard men believed that by drinking the blood of their enemies, they could absorb their strength and appease the leopard spirits that protected them and granted them supernatural powers. Once the initiate became a full-fledged member of the Leopard Society, they swore a sacred oath to defend their homeland and to murder as many of the invaders as they could. Throughout the late 1800s, the number of Leopard Society attacks grew more frequent, causing the French and English governments to issue warnings to settlers to limit their contact with local villagers. After all, as far as they knew, anyone they came in contact with could be a potential Leopard Society member. The colonist isolation tactics appeared to work for a short while because during the late 1890s the Leopard Society went quiet. The number of murders and reports of Leopard men stalking their prey at night dwindled. While the Europeans believed their new safety precautions were the reasons the killing stopped, many local West Africans came to believe that the dark spirits that inhabited the Leopard Men had gone dormant, having served their purpose in showing the white men who was in charge. But this uneasy peace didn't last. In 1900, Colonial Governor Frederick Hodgson provoked an armed rebellion when he insulted the members of the Ashanti tribe over one of their most sacred objects, a golden stool. 
The Ashante believed the stool floated down from the sky and landed on the lap of their very first king during the 17th century. After that, the stool had been passed through the generations and no one was allowed to sit on it. But the tribe believed it contained their tribe's collective souls. But that didn't stop Frederick Hodgson from demanding the stool for himself, which sparked a bloody conflict between the Ashante and the European interlopers. A young Ashante woman retaliated by leading a group of warriors to attack a British fort. The uprising failed, but the anger still simmered within the tribe. It wasn't long after the failed revolt that the Leopard Society reared its head once again. Throughout the early 20th century, British colonists began disappearing in the jungle. Like the French decades earlier, their bodies were found badly mutilated and missing their organs. As word began to spread that the Leopard Society had returned, so did the Society's numbers begin to grow once again. Only this time, the Leopard Society didn't appear to just be limiting their victims to white colonists. Since slavery had long since been outlawed, that meant there were no longer any white slavers to hunt. This opened the floodgates to anyone and everyone becoming fair game. The Leopard Men began choosing victims from their fellow villagers as well as from European colonists. Elder tribesmen in Sierra Leone began warning members of their tribes to avoid traveling alone, or, if they did have to travel alone, to at least do so on the public roads and to stay away from the jungle. And most important of all, to never, ever go out after dark. But despite these warnings, the leopard men still managed to keep claiming victims. Sometimes people did wander off by themselves, and many of them never returned. Occasionally, a few lucky souls managed to narrowly escape the leopard men, and they returned to their villages with terrifying tales of leopard monsters that leapt out of the jungle and attempted to disembowel them. But although a handful of witnesses managed to live to tell the tale of their near-deadly encounters with the leopard society, no one was ever able to identify just who these leopard men really were. When questioned, witnesses routinely stated they hadn't been able to see their attackers' faces since they wore leopard masks to hide their true identities. This only led to further speculation that anyone you ran into on the street could be a potential leopard man. All those years of getting away with murder only emboldened the Leopard Society members even more. Society members became convinced their magic rituals actually worked, and that they had the power of the spirit world on their side. As the body count grew, many villagers became convinced that the leopard men really were supernatural beings who could shapeshift into giant cats. The scientific term for such shapeshifting is therianthropy, and it's something that appears in societies and cultures around the world and throughout history. A legendary class of Norse warriors known as berserkers were famous for rushing into battle without armor, clad only in wolf or bear skins, which they believed gave them supernatural strength. Some Native American tribes have legends about skinwalkers, supernatural beings with the ability to transform into any animal they desire. Of course, the most well-known such stories of shape-shifting creatures are werewolves, which dominated Central European folklore and continue to appear in monster movies to this day. Like the leopard men of Western Africa, the ancient Hittites actually believed that by dressing themselves in wolf skins, they could transform themselves into wolves in battle. By 1912, the Leopard Society began to choose victims who could help fulfill a specific goal. If a member of a leopard man's family got sick, they might seek out and murder a medicine man. If someone's crop failed, 
They might go after a farmer, which, incidentally, may have been the case with the murdered man discovered by Patrick O'Dowd. Throughout the early 1900s, the Leopard Society began building sacrificial altars hidden away deep in the jungle. These monuments were constructed of stone and decorated with the bones of their victims. Leopard men dragged their victims through the jungle to these altars where they would ritually slice them open and drain them of blood. Although in their early days the leopard men hunted in packs of two or three, by the late 1900s they began to refine their methods, eventually coming up with the concept of the Bati Yeli. This was a chosen executioner who would be sent out wearing the sacred leopard mask and leopard skin robe. It was the Bati Yeli's duty to kidnap the chosen sacrifice, bring them back to the sacrificial altar, and prepare the Borfema elixir for the ceremony. Although we don't have official numbers of just how many victims there were, it's believed the Leopard Society murdered hundreds of people throughout Gabon, Liberia, and Sierra Leone throughout the first half of the 20th century. Panic and hysteria became widespread throughout West African villages. Some tribal lawmen tried to partner with the Europeans to weed out the Leopard Society members in their midst. But the cult's strict secrecy prevented many members of the Leopard Society from ever being identified. Soon villagers began accusing one another of being leopard men left and right. With very little hard evidence to show for it, these accusations became a bona fide witch hunt, for which it's undeniable that many innocent people were executed. From 1914 to 1918, fear and paranoia threatened to tear apart the very fabric of the tribal system that had been in place throughout Western Africa for centuries. But then in 1918, the leopard men murders came to another abrupt halt. Sightings of leopard men in the jungle ended. We don't know if the public executions were the reason why the Leopard Society vanished, but what we do know is this was only another temporary reprieve. Because just 12 years later, the killing started once again. In 1930, mutilated bodies began turning up again in Liberia, only this time with an added twist. Many of these victims weren't being attacked in the jungle. Rather, the Leopard Society had begun brazenly attacking unsuspecting victims inside their homes. One such case was that of the murder of the 15-year-old girl Dr. Werner Young discovered in her home. Although the girl's remains were badly mutilated and even displayed what appeared to be animalistic bite and claw marks, it wasn't until he discovered human footprints among the paw prints on the floor that he came to realize that the perpetrator was no animal. Dr. Young wrote extensively about the leopard man murders in his book African Jungle Doctor, Ten Years in Liberia. Dr. Young believed that the resurgence of the Leopard Society may have been spurred on by the relative lack of European law enforcement beginning in the 1930s. It was during this time that many of the French and British soldiers who had been stationed in West Africa were recalled to their home countries as tensions mounted in what was accelerating into the Second World War. But once World War II was over, many of these troops returned to their former posts in West Africa. Only now these same soldiers had gained a great deal more combat experience and were better equipped to confront the Leopard Society threat head-on. But the Leopard Society refused to be intimidated by these newly returned battle-hardened soldiers. Between 1946 and 1947, at least 89 more murders occurred. Despite their best efforts, the British and French soldiers remained unable to put an end to these attacks. There seemed to be no discernible pattern to the killings. The Leopard Society chose victims of either sex, of any age, and of all ethnicities. Some weeks there might be as many as three victims. In other weeks, none at all. On top of all that, many of the victims remained unidentified because of how badly mutilated and unrecognizable the remains were. 
Practically the only victims who were ever identified were those who were murdered inside their own homes. Some officials wrote frustrated reports of their inability to identify the Leopard Society members. Basically, any male villager could be a suspect. Strict curfews were put in place. All groups and organizations were banned, as well as the practice of many black magic rituals. Many arrests were made, but still the Leopard Society continued to operate with impunity. Nothing the French and British did seemed to work to stop the violence. Once stories of the Leopard Society murders reached European newspapers, people became fascinated with the idea of a deadly supernatural cult who dressed in leopard armor. One reporter described it as the strangest, biggest murder hunt in the world. Fictionalized versions of the Leopard Society began to appear in several sources of popular entertainment. The 18th novel in the Tarzan series was titled Tarzan and the Leopard Men. One of the Tarzan comic strips featured a version of the Leopard Society as well. There was even a 1946 film titled Tarzan and the Leopard Women, which follows Tarzan being asked to investigate a series of murders being committed by a leopard cult. A popular 1963 children's book by Willard Price titled African Adventure features a bloodthirsty leopard man out to kill the book's heroes. Robert E. Howard, creator of Conan the Barbarian, mentions them in some of his short stories. And a series of the legendary Tintin comics features Tintin on the run from leopard men in the African Congo. Their influence continues even up to today. If you've ever seen the Marvel film The Black Panther, then you've seen some of the cultural influences the concept of the Leopard Society had on the pop culture zeitgeist. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Although the citizens of the fictional African country of Wakanda are portrayed in a positive light, you can still see the secret society's influence in that the citizens of Wakanda are broken down into separate clans that each worship a different animal totem. There's a gorilla clan, a rhinoceros clan, and of course, the Black Panther clan, from which the comic book hero gets his name. In fact, during the 1970s, when the radical Black Panther Party began making headlines, Marvel editors briefly considered renaming their superhero the Black Leopard, but the name didn't stick. But although the Leopard Society remained a fun and distant fascination for people living in Europe, the citizens of the West African countries were still living in real fear. One colonial officer wrote that the stage has now been reached when every single male adult is a potential leopard murderer. Real leopards prowl through the thick, six-foot-high bush which fringes the twisting, dusty tracks. But man-leopards, with a blind belief in their primitive cult, are now taking human lives at the rate of more than one a week in this blood-stained patch of Africa. In response to the growing panic, the Nigerian government issued a strict 4 p.m. curfew. The only people who were allowed outside in the late afternoon and through the night were armed soldiers on patrol. But this still didn't stop the Leopard Society attacks. It just made them step up their attacks on people inside their homes. In 1947, a British district officer named Terry Wilson, who had been stationed in Opobo, Nigeria for only six months, grew fed up and began to focus on putting an end to the Leopard Society once and for all. 
Wilson investigated more Leopard Society murders than practically anyone else. And he set out to learn all he could about them in order to come up with new tactics to track them down. Wilson spent months hiding out in the jungle at night hoping to catch one of the leopard men in the act. Eventually his patience paid off when one evening a leopard man came wandering into the forest near where he hid. The man was covered in blood, having evidently just finished committing a murder. Wilson was surprised to see that when the leopard man took off his ceremonial mask, he was actually Nagogo, a local tribal chief with whom he was acquainted. Wilson gathered his men and raided Nagogo's home. Inside, they found the leopard man's mask, his ceremonial robe, and his steel-clawed weapons. Wilson received a tip that they should try digging near Nagogo's home, and when they did, they uncovered the remains of 13 more victims. They arrested Nagogo and tried to get the man to reveal the identities of the other members of the cult. But during the first week Nagogo was under arrest, both the man's wife and teenage daughter were murdered as a warning to him. Terry Wilson tried to use this situation to his advantage to drive a wedge between Nagogo and the Leopard Society. He hoped that showing him the mutilated bodies of his family members would cause him to betray his comrades. But the shock proved too much for the chief. As soon as he laid eyes on the bloody bodies of his wife and daughter, he collapsed and died of a heart attack. Following Nagogo's death, the Leopard Society became even more fearless. Wilson managed to gather together an additional 200 officers as reinforcements. But one night, the Leopard Men managed to murder a female victim inside the police compound a short distance away from headquarters. Whoever did it got away completely unseen. After that, the Leopard Society committed several more murders in broad daylight right under the officers' noses. Patrols reported being able to hear the screams of terrified people being savagely mutilated in the bush nearby. But by the time they made their way through the brush, the victim was already dead, and the Leopard Men were nowhere to be found. This left Wilson's officers shaken to the core. Several of them began to voice their fears that the supernatural stories behind the Leopard Society might actually be true. One night in August 1947, Wilson was awakened by the sound of his dog growling. When he got up to investigate and peered out his window, a four-foot-long arrow came whizzing by his head and embedded itself in his bedroom wall behind him. The next morning he learned that two of his other officers had narrowly escaped death the same night. Wilson knew his men were becoming unnerved and he needed to do something fast. So he decided to set a trap for the leopard men using human bait. He sent out one of his best men posing as the son of a native woman to walk along a trail where several killings had already taken place. Wilson and a dozen of his officers concealed themselves in the nearby brush and waited. The stakeout paid off when a blood-curdling shriek shattered the still of the night. A man dressed in leopard robes rushed out of the jungle swinging a huge club. The leopard man brought the club down on the young officer's head, crushing his skull and killing him instantly. By the time Wilson and his men rushed out of their hiding places, the leopard man was already gone. Wilson was enraged that he had lost one of his best men, and that the perpetrator had gotten away. When he examined the body of his slain officer, he realized the officer was still clutching a bloody knife. This meant that the leopard man must have been suffering from a bloody stab wound. This at least was something to go on. Wilson was about to have the body of his slain officer carried back to district headquarters when he had an idea. He didn't think the leopard man ever saw them hiding out for him. 
so he wondered if the leopard man might return to the scene of the crime to retrieve the body. Wilson sent his other men back to the nearby village looking for a wounded man while he stayed behind and hid in the bushes. At around midnight, Wilson was just about to give it up and go home when a cat-like creature leaped out of the jungle on all fours and pounced on the fallen officer's body. In the gloom, Wilson realized he was looking at a man wearing a leopard mask, wielding a two-pronged steel claw that glinted in the moonlight. The leopard man slashed at the slain officer's belly, attempting to cut him open and tear out his organs. The man even snarled and made noises that sounded eerily like a real leopard. Wilson rushed out of his hiding space toward the leopard man. The cultist reared around and hissed at him. He leaped at him with his claws out, and Wilson shot him in the chest. Wilson's victory against the Leopard Man proved to be a sea change in the attitudes about the Leopard Man. His ability to kill one of them proved to his officers and the other villagers who saw the body that these weren't supernatural creatures and were only men of flesh and blood. Once word spread of what Wilson had done, witnesses finally began to work up the courage to come forward and tell what they knew about the cultists, even leading the authorities to one of the hidden jungle shrines. It was bathed in dried blood, and atop the stone slab stood a grotesque effigy of a half-leopard, half-man. Mass arrests of suspected cultists soon followed. In February of 1948, 73 initiated cult members were arrested and sent to prison. 39 of them were sentenced to hang before a group of tribal chiefs, who spread the word to their villages that the leopard men were not immortal monsters as they believed. Things were changing throughout Western Africa. Just a month earlier, on January 10, 1948, seven members of a similar lion cult were executed in Tanganyika. This lion society had operated much like the Leopard Society and had murdered 40 natives in ritual slayings, all while wearing lion skins and using weapons that resembled lion claws. Although fear of the Leopard Society waned following the executions in 1948, the Leopard Men never completely went away. Although it's believed that the mass arrests in 1947 did manage to prosecute some Leopard Society leaders, other murders attributed to Borfema rituals have continued to occur throughout Western Africa, all the way up to the modern day. On September 22, 2015, a 17-year-old Liberian man named Cephas Zabane failed to come home from work one night. That same evening, another boy from the neighborhood, Jacob Vombo, managed to arouse Cephas' father James's suspicions when he came by the house asking if he knew where Cephas was. Jacob became skittish when James questioned him further since he knew the young man had been with Cephas earlier that day. After that, James Zabane went to the police and reported his son missing. He was surprised to see Jacob was already at the police station about another matter. Police searched Jacob's yard and soon discovered Cephas's motorcycle hidden under a tarp. They interrogated Jacob Vombo for hours, before he finally broke down and confessed to taking part in abducting Cephas and leading him into the jungle at the behest of a powerful government official. But Jacob swore he did not kill his friend. Cephas's remains were soon found in a sugarcane field belonging to Jacob's family. Rumors immediately began to swirl that Cephas had been murdered as part of a black magic ritual and that parts of his body were missing. But the lead investigator on the case was quick to dismiss such claims. He swears to this day that Jacob alone murdered Cephas in order to steal his motorcycle, and that the body was too badly decomposed to show any signs of missing organs. 
But the medical examiner who studied Cephas's body told a different story. He later claimed on the witness stand that Cephas showed numerous broken bones, as if he had been in a scuffle. After that, his body had been drained of blood, and several of his major organs were missing, as well as his eyes, tongue, and ears. According to Jacob Vombo, the high-ranking government official talked him into leading Cephas Zabane to his death in exchange for helping him pay to attend university. Police brought the politician he accused of being involved in Cephas' murder into the police station for questioning. But Jacob says he saw the politician pass a mysterious note to the lead investigator. Immediately after that, the politician was allowed to go free. Jacob Vombo is the only person who was ever charged with Cephas Zabane's murder, and he is currently serving a life sentence in prison. But Jacob still insists that the government official he accused is just part of a still-thriving secret society who uses black magic and ritual sacrifice to remain in power. Now, we don't know for certain if this secret society Jacob describes is real or not. The lead investigator of Cephas Zabane's murder insists secret societies and ritual murders are just urban myths. Although in 2015 the United Nations issued a report stating that ritual murders continue to be a very real problem in Liberia. In the mid-1970s, two senior government officials in Liberia were convicted and executed for the ritual murder of a fisherman. If Cephas Zabane's murder really was the work of the Leopard Society, then it certainly fits what they've been able to do for centuries. Disappear into the shadows, waiting for the right moment to strike again. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. Just a reminder, I have a Patreon account set up where you can help support the show. Patrons to the show get access to all sorts of bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our bonus mini-episodes. I also would love it if you could take the time to subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your reviews helps boost us in Apple's magical rankings and helps spread the good word about our own little secret society here to more people. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, you can find us in a lot of other places as well. We're on most of the major podcast apps, and we also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Feel free to drop us a line at any of those, or send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.